Good morning. Um, today we are continuing in Matthew. We're reading Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 19 through 24. Uh, last week we um, looked at Jesus' teaching on fasting, the week before that on the Lord's Prayer and his instruction around prayer. Um, but today we're looking at uh, his words on treasures. So I'm going to read this. It's Matthew chapter 19, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Um, so I didn't choose this uh, it, for Father's Day. It maybe feels like kind of a bit of a heavy topic, and yet I think there's good news for us in this. There's something meaningful for us. Um, personally, I've been wrestling with the content of this teaching, Jesus's words, for the last two weeks. Uh, they've convicted me while simultaneously inspiring me. So my request of you today is uh, as much as you are able, though I'm the one speaking, uh, look past me, through me, and realize who is actually speaking this. The words on the page are recorded out of Jesus's mouth. He is the one who's instructing this and asking you to listen, asking you to hear his heart behind it. Truthfully, as I measure myself against this passage, I realize that I am not living in alignment with it. Not fully anyways, um, but I want to. So as we move forward and, and measure ourselves against this, I wanna point one thing out, our sermon title because this will drive and shape how we feel the whole time. Our sermon title is Receive with No Guilt and Give with No Hesitation. Receive with no guilt and give with no hesitation. God's purpose, Jesus's purpose is not to condemn, but to reorient. So Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Uh, Holy Spirit, would you um, lead us, lead our hearts in this, um, as we listen to you and your teaching, Jesus, help us to remember your face. Uh, your face is not above us looking down with condemnation. Uh, you have the face of a tender father and a loving friend. You are gentle and kind, and yet as a loving father, you also give hard words. You ask us to live a better way, and you're with us the whole time. Amen. So uh, our roadmap, what to expect for today. So we're gonna start off um, by looking at the most like hard to understand bit. The eye is the lamp of the body. And we're just gonna start there because it's the most technical explanation and that will let us move through everything else a little bit more easily. And then we're gonna, once we've got that like technical bit cleared up, we're gonna look at what is Jesus's true focus? What is he really wanting to communicate? And we're gonna see our third point is how that is expressed in the Exodus narrative and the Exodus narrative is gonna make us question the difference between kingdom of God and the empire of the world. Once we've compared those two things, we're then going to look at Jesus's teaching top to bottom, and we're gonna have the framework for empire and kingdom of God to understand his teaching better. 
And then at the very end, we're just gonna say like, okay, North Idaho 2021, what do I do with this? So starting with the eye, the eye is the lamp of the body. And so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So this is in the middle of two other sections, right? Jesus says, do not lay up treasures on earth. The eye is the lamp of the body. You cannot serve two masters. And it feels like, why is this in here? Uh, it's pretty clear Jesus is talking about money and possessions. And then there's this random bit about your eye. Feels like it's not, uh, it doesn't fit. But really in, uh, in this period of time, and even before it in uh, Hebrew culture, the eye was a, a metaphor for a, a window to the heart. Right? We kind of understand this still. And there's some debate about the direction of sight. And let me explain that. So a healthy eye could have been the eye through which light entered you and transformed your heart. So it was an image for light entering through you and transforming your heart. So light is coming in. Could have also meant the opposite of that, which means that an observer looking through your eye, the healthy eye would show the light that was already in. The light in you was coming out through the healthy eye and people could see it. And so in that then a, a dark eye would be someone looking at you, looking into you and seeing darkness. The bad eye would have been the window to your soul and someone seeing darkness or the opposite, someone looking into you and seeing light. And this is a, a word picture that Hebrew culture used uh, to basically talk about money and our relationship to it. And that's why Matthew records it here. So to um, kind of e express and explain this Hebrew word picture, I'm gonna point us to two scriptures. The first one is Proverbs chapter 28, verse 22. Uh, I'm gonna read it if you don't wanna flip there, but if you would like to write it down, that'd be great. Proverbs 22, or 28, verse 22. It says this, a stingy man hastens after wealth and he does not know that poverty will come upon him. And the literal Hebrew words there for stingy man is a man whose eye is evil. A man whose eye is dark, self-centered, greedy, a man full of darkness. Uh, but the opposite of that would then be right, a healthy eye. And so to look at that, we're gonna go to James chapter one, verse five. Now, before we read that, I just wanna point out the Greek word that Matthew uses. When Matthew says, the eye is a lamp of the body, a healthy eye means a body full of light. He uses this Greek word, aplos. Um, and I am no Greek scholar, but the internet tells me um, that uh, it means singular, meaning like kind of a wholeness, a singularity. It could also mean single or simple. That's the word that we translate here as a healthy eye. That same exact Greek word, aplos, is used in this sentence right here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives aplos to all without reproach. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. It's the exact same Greek word being used because of this word image of an evil eye equals greed, but a healthy eye, an aplos eye is generous. It has a healthy relationship with money. It is used to describe God himself. Now, now that we've got some of those technical bits out of the way, we can see that there's three phrases, treasures in heaven, um, the eye is the lamp of the body, and 
You cannot serve two masters. We begin to see the continuity of all three of those. And Jesus is very clearly, without dispute, pointing at our money, at our possessions. And what he says is, your treasures, your worldly possessions, you cannot serve God and money. But my question is like, he's, he's pointing at those things, but what does he actually want out of this? What is he pointing us toward? So I'm going to read these really quickly in kind of a summative fashion. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's desiring that our hearts are oriented around a kingdom that is eternal. He's desiring the security and the long-term well-being of our hearts. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your body will be full of darkness. He wants our bodies to be full of light, not darkness. And, and light in scripture represents divinely revealed truth. It represents wisdom, purity of character, as well as behavior. In darkness, its opposite then represents moral blindness. It represents corruption, deceitful character, evil saying, I want your bodies to be full of light, not evil. In this third image, he says, no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I think he's saying that he wants us to be free from those things that will enslave us if not for his proper kingship. So there are hard words for us in his teaching. He is pointing at our money. He's pointing at our possessions, but he has a good purpose for doing so. He's a generous purpose for doing so. So as we, as we listen to him, I suggest we trust him as we would trust a skilled surgeon to cut the tumors out of our heart. So underneath his three images, they're all based on one message that he has for all mankind. And as he was giving this message in these three images, he was speaking to crowds of real life humans, right? So there would have been the poorest of the poor, the lame and the beggar. There also would have been the middle class, those who were getting by, those would have been like the Galileans. There also would have been the social elite, right? The Romans who had the, the social privilege in that culture, as well as the religious elite, uh, religious elite of the Jewish scholars. And Jesus's words here would have struck each of them differently, right? The rich would have heard you shouldn't be rich, give away all your money. The poor would have heard, don't put any hope, don't pursue wealth of any kind. And it's possible that we're hearing him similarly. But I wanna point us to the, the universal message underneath. Again, what does he want? And the universal message begins on page one of our scriptures. And it all is about trust. In the beginning, God created all things and it was good. And he loved it and he was loyal to it. He made men and women and his desire was to care for them. And then a whole lot goes wrong, but God follows it up with a promise. He says, I will rescue and I will be faithful. And out of that promise, he chooses a family, the family of Abraham. And he says, I will use you to bless the entire world. And that family ends up living in Egypt where they end up staying for 400 
years. During that 400 years, it goes from one family and that family grows and grows and grows till it is a nation of people. Now, Trevor, where are you going with this, right? Let me continue. So this family, through which God says, I will bless the whole world, they've been in Egypt for over 400 years. And what happens during that time is they forget much of God's story and they forget how to trust him. They, begun, or they become shaped by the cultures and the beliefs of Egypt. And so at the right time, God chooses to extricate them from Egypt, to remove them. And he does that through a series of miraculous events. And the very first thing he does after this Exodus um, moment is he makes them wander in the wilderness, in the desert. And the story about removing the Israelites out of Egypt and placing them in the desert it was not primarily about getting the Israelites out of Egypt. It was about getting Egypt and its influences out of them and reteaching them the story and how to trust. The situation they had in Egypt is there was like vast inequality, right? Between the wealth of the rich and the poverty of the poor. And the profit that this Egyptian upper class was living off of was only possible because of the unfair treatment and the unfair wages of the Israelites. We call this slavery. So as an enslaved Israelite, facing unfair treatment, unfair wages, I wonder like, how would this have shaped them? How would this have shaped you? I think it's easy to imagine. You begin to wonder like, Will I have enough? What will happen tomorrow? Am I secure? What do I need to do to protect myself? When is the next paycheck coming? Will I be safe? So this is the the posture and the mindset they have as they've been brought out of Egypt and they're now in the wilderness. Their first six weeks go by and they officially run out of food. Everything that they brought with them from Egypt has run out and there's symbolism there. So I'm gonna give a a quick summary of Exodus chapter 16. If you'd like to read it later or look there yourself, you can. It's Exodus chapter 16 and I'm gonna go through it quickly just for the sake of time. So here's a summary of that. They're out of the wilderness, they're wandering in the desert, six weeks out of food, okay? And they begin to complain and they begin to say, God, it would have been better if you left us in Egypt. At least there we had meat and bread, but instead you've brought us into the wilderness to die. And God says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. In the evening, I'll send quail for meat. In the morning, I'll send manna with which you can make bread. And then he gives them instruction. He says, every day, go out and collect as much as you want and bring it home and make sure there's enough for everyone in your house. But then he says, don't save any of it overnight. He says, today, trust you will have enough for today. Tomorrow, trust that I will give you enough for tomorrow. Now, what do you guys think many of them do with that instruction? They go out, they get as much as they want, give it to their family, and then they've got a little bit left over. And Egypt has trained them to say, so they do, they save it overnight. And they wake up in the morning, And this this portion that they've saved has begun to rot and breed maggots overnight. It's inedible. 
But they wake up and they open the tent and they realize there's an entirely fresh new supply. God has provided enough for today. Now this keeps happening though. They keep doing it over and over. And about a week goes by and the end of the week is arriving. And it's the day before Sabbath, which is God's day of rest. And he says, um, today, the day before Sabbath, gather two portions, as much as you want for two days for you and everyone in your house. Save it overnight. So that way today you have enough and tomorrow you have enough so that all you have to do tomorrow, you don't have to gather. All you have to do is rest and trust. And what do you think many of them do? They gather two portions on the day before Sabbath. They enjoy it. They store it up. They wake up in the morning and there's no rot. There's no maggots. They have an entire day's provision. But then they open the tent and they go out to get more. But there is none. God didn't send any manna on the Sabbath. God's response is he says, how long will you refuse to follow my instruction? How long until you trust me? So this is a real life story between God and his chosen people. And what is he teaching them through it? He brought them out of Egypt in order to reshape them. I think he wants them to know that you don't need to chase more. Notice, God is protecting their rest, even when they're willing to trade it for more. He says, I will protect your Sabbath, even though you're going to chase after more. I think He's saying that you don't need to trust in your excess, the little bit left over at the end of the day. He's saying, I will give you enough. He's saying, I will provide you all that you need and you can trust me because I'm different than your other masters. Now this leads us to this clear comparison, right? You got Egypt, which represents empire and God, the wilderness, which represents the kingdom, God's provision. Um, Egypt is one of the nations in scripture that represents empire. Babylon is another. If you want to hear God's attitude towards Babylon, read Revelation chapter six or chapter 18. Now within empire, both historical real life nations, but also the idea of empire, there's a couple things that define it. The first one is perceived scarcity. That just means like, I need to get more. I need to protect what I have. There's not enough to get around. So I'm going to... There's also the idea that joy comes through consumption. The more that I have, the happier I will be. Also competition. It's not only good if I can get more, I'm also respected by everyone else for the more that I have. I'm winning when I get more than others. And in, in that empire, both historical and in the idea of it, if all of that is true, what we walk away with is wanting more happier, I'm more secure, I'm more respected if I have more. So in that situation, the rich strive to get rich because they want more. The poor, even in their financial insecurity, also fall into the drive for more. Empire is contrasted with the scriptural idea of kingdom. And, and we've talked about kingdom quite a lot in Matthew. Kingdom of God is God's rule and his reign in the hearts of men and women. And the result of kingdom is we begin to trust. We begin to be generous, believe in self-sacrifice. As Jesus taught a few weeks ago, enemy love. 
All of that is because I'm willing to look at God and say, you've given me enough. I trust. Jesus is, this is part of his message. Is he saying, trust, trust me. So we're gonna look at where is trust, empire, kingdom, where is that in Jesus's words, okay? So we're gonna kind of go top to bottom. So um, Jesus says, right, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. His very first point is treasures on earth, the gathering of more, the accumulation of more, 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 right? And Jesus's response is he says, stop, you have enough. Store up treasures in heaven. Let your heart belong to the kingdom. He says, don't be full of darkness and greed and self-concern. He says, you can't live in both empire and in kingdom. You have to give one up. And as I think about that message, I think about my own home. And I said, I'm not in alignment with this, though I want to be. I think of the treasure stored in my house. My treasures on earth are crammed into my overflowing closet. Right? My treasures on earth mean I can't organize my dresser because I have so many clothes. My treasures on earth, my more, means I can't park in my garage because of all of my more. My basement is littered with more because I don't have enough places to put it all. And worse than that, when more is the thing that is driving me, it changes my heart. Jesus says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And when I am driven by my wants, I begin to see people as opportunities. I begin to fear for what I do have, protect it. I begin to fear if what I have is enough for tomorrow or if enough coming in will provide for tomorrow. And I begin to measure people by my version of treasure. If they have more of what I value, what do I have to do to be like them? If I have more of what I value, other people should be like me. And the result is I literally feel my heart darkening. Then Jesus says, he talks about laying up treasures in heaven. He says, stop, instead lay up treasure in heaven. And notice here, like he doesn't, like for those of us that are drivers and movers, like he doesn't squash ambition. He doesn't say, just stop, do nothing. Like just give up, stop all your efforts, stop all your drive. What he says is redirect your ambition. He says, stop laying up treasure in heaven. Yearn for something great, or excuse me, stop laying up treasure on earth yearn for something meaningful and valuable, treasure in heaven. Now, as he's saying that, like my first question is like, well, what does that even mean? Like what's, what's treasure in heaven? Like what's treasure in heaven? Like, what does it mean to lay it up? Like, how do I do that? So uh, we're just gonna talk about that. What is treasure in heaven? Uh, as I understand it, there's kind of three main things going on here. The first one is what we all expect the future tense version of treasure, right? Treasure in heaven means when I die, there's some sort of like vague future reward. Now, New Testament writings do, like they, that's there. Like future rewards um, by God, meaning a world that has been remade and healed, a world in which all of our needs and our desires are filled by him. All of our sadness is relieved. All of our joy is increased. Like that future promise is there. And it's in Jesus' teaching here. But there's another part that like, I didn't really realize was here. 
that Jesus also has a present tense reward in mind. Like right now, here and now, you and I can lay up treasure in heaven and begin enjoying it. The reason that's here is because Matthew, the author, often uses the word heaven as a placeholder for God's presence, the place where God is present. So it's likely that Jesus is encouraging his disciples. He's saying, focus on and begin enjoying right now new nearness with the Father. My brain immediately goes to abiding, which has been our theme as a church for the year. Abiding, being with, resting in the presence of God. And I think like what a treasure to be able to be at rest in the presence of God, regardless of my performance. Before the eyes of God, I can be safe and at rest. Now the third thing, the third treasure in heaven that I think Jesus is pointing at here is people. And it feels like kind of weird to say that, like people are treasure in heaven, um, but God definitely like wants us to use our lives harvesting, right? There's some of that language in, in the book of John, uh, the language of fishing for men. Right? We know that God loved the world and he sent his son into the world in order to save us and save them. And as I say that, like, please forget any boring images of evangelism, just like, like throw those out the door. What I want you to imagine when I say people it's like, imagine your, your family members, your neighbors, like the people around you. Imagine them given new life in God's family. And remember, like that's both future, yes, but also present. Think of the people in your life and the radical transformation that would occur in their hearts if the kingdom of God was present in them. Think of the healing, the difference, the way they parent, the way they love their spouses, the way they serve their neighborhood, the freedom they have in life. That is treasure. But then there's also this future tense, like this world made new. And we want them there, right? We want them in God's renewed kingdom. So I wonder, like, if those three things are treasure in heaven, like, how do we store it up? Like, how do we actually go about that? I think Jesus gives us um, the language for storing treasure in heaven, as well as the how in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter four is where he says, fishers of men, fishing for men. But right before that, he gives us the how. He says, follow me. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So more than a list of behaviors, he's inviting us to follow him, to become like him, to respond to life as he would. And this means like creative, thoughtful pursuit of justice, generosity, evangelism, and all of it, we are made over time, fishers of men, through abiding with him, right? Living life with him, resting in his presence with regularity, letting his personality shape our personality. And with my life, I do wanna pursue the kingdom of God, right? At the end of the day, as much as present treasures are, are great, like, I also want that future thing. Like, I want future security, kingdom of heaven. And as I've been thinking about that, and thinking about this, like, journey as well as the destination, um, I've got this image in my head of the Wizard of Oz. You guys familiar with, like, the yellow brick road in the Wizard of Oz? 
uh, I just, I, that's stuck in my head. And um, I'm, I'm gonna ask you a question here in a minute. So tune in for my explanation. Um, so in my imagination, this yellow brick road, right? think of the Wizard of Oz, what is it? It's brightly colored, it's wide, it's easy to follow, it's paved before you. That's where that metaphor stops, but like hold on to that image. Uh, imagine that yellow brick road. And as I think of it, that road is the road laid before us by our culture. And, and all cultures across all countries and of all of history have their own version of this. So this isn't new. But imagine this road is built out of all of those small and unquestioned things, the things we don't even think about. This is like just the road of all the normal habits, all the normal goals of our culture. It's how we spend our free time, the things that we want, the things that, we, that earn us the respect of others, like just all the little things. And it's right in front of us. So here's my question to you, like thinking of that road, all the little things, um, what does our culture say is the good life? Like that road before you, what does the culture say is the good life? And I want to hear from you. So if you won't mind, shout it out. Big house. Yeah, 100%. I save up, I get a better job so I can get a big house that my family can enjoy. Yeah. What else? Yeah, uh, I want to retire at 55 or 65 or 70. Like, I want to know I'm safe, I'm secure. I can do everything I want. Yeah. Side hustle, yeah. I, like, um, people will respect me for my ambition, my willingness to do more, to be a hard worker, to do, like, go above and beyond. Yeah. What else? Yeah. The more family you have, the more grandkids you have. Like, um, in our culture, maybe it's a bit more sentimental, right? Like, oh, how warm and fuzzy of a family. But in, in historical cultures, in patriarchies, it very much was like, your family is your wealth. Right? Your family provides for you. They are your retirement. Yeah, what else? Be kind, yeah. Be nice, right? It's hard to walk down the street of Coeur d'Alene and not expect a nice person to bump into you, right? Yeah, education. Uh, when I was in high school, the question wasn't, do you want to go to college? It was, where are you going to college? Right? We, we, we pursue education as a culture. Anything else? Just like easy stuff, normal things that we don't even question. What was that? Yeah, toys. I want a jet ski. That'd be fun. I want a boat. That'd be fun. I want a dirt bike. I'm guilty of a lot of that. Yeah. Vacations, right? Um, you are, are a sign of your sophistication is your ability to travel, to see the world. That's something that everyone should be able to do is fly around the world, right? Go on vacation. Prestige in your career, right? Um, I don't think any of us would say our culture says don't get prestige. Don't try hard, right? The road before us is get prestige, earn it, do well. So just a couple of questions to kind of tie that up. Like, so when you walk onto a car lot, which one do you want? Do you want the brand new shiny car or do you want the used car? What does our culture say? Shiny car, go for the shiny car. What do you have to do to get the shiny car? According to our culture, this yellow brick road, how much income do you need to be happy? A little bit more. I would venture so far as to say 100K. Right? Our, 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 our culture like eyeballs the 100K, the six figures. When I get there, I'll be happy. But then a little bit more is always there, right? Um, what do you do with your free time? Right? You relax. 
enjoy, like you enjoy life, you pursue pleasures. So um, again, my point for all of this is not to say any of it is bad. I don't think any of it is wrong. And none of those things have we ever questioned, right? Those are the things that we all just know. But here's my follow-up question. Without the intervening grace of God, where does the yellow brick road lead? Yeah, um, all joking aside, if we listen to the wisdom of Jesus of Nazareth, he says, hell, eternal distance from the presence of God. Without the intervening grace of God, this road that we don't even question will take us straight out of God's presence and into hell. Now in my imagination, I can see myself at a crossroads because the yellow brick road is not the only option. There's a small, less traveled path that splits off from the road and it cuts through the bushes and into the wilderness. And I can tell that others have gone before me on this path. And as my eyes follow this trail from when it jumps the curb through the bushes in the wilderness, I look at its destination and I can very clearly see where it leads. It leads to a city on a hill, it leads to the kingdom of God. And the reality is I find myself yearning for the kingdom. I want it, my eyes are on it. But then I look over and I'm like, oh, that's nice too. Like, I want one of those. And I find myself in real time, seeing the kingdom of God, seeing the road before me and doing this. I'm, like, I'm off the yellow brick road and yet I'm like trying to stay as near to it as possible. And what Jesus says is you cannot serve two masters. He says you cannot walk two paths. It is spiritual schizophrenia to jump between empire and kingdom. Dale Bruner in his commentary that I've relied on for much of this, he says this, quote, Jesus doesn't say it is unspiritual to serve two masters. He says it's impossible to serve both God and money. Jesus doesn't want us to waste our lives practicing the impossible. We're asked by Jesus to turn our backs on the goals and the goods of the world to be the real atheists of our culture, denying the gods to whom most give unquestioning fealty. And I have two stories that put some flesh on this that are both real life this week stories. Last week, I had some friends in from out of town um, and one of my buddies, his name is Kyle, and he is a devoted follower of Jesus. And he's led home discipleship groups for a number of years. But he shared with me, and he's been reflecting on his life recently and the treasures of his life. And I swear, like I didn't prompt him at all. This was just, Kyle, what's up? And he says, I've been reflecting on the treasures of my life. And he says, like, he's enjoyed financial success. Like he's done well. He's got a nice house. He's got two kids. He has good investments, all good things. But as he looks back and evaluates his kingdom impact, he says that through his life, he knows of only one individual 
who was outside the kingdom of God and through God's grace working through Kyle, that man is now in the family of God. He's been a, a Christ follower diligently for 15 years. And he says one person in 15 years. And that disappoints him. And he's dissatisfied with that. And I think he's rightly dissatisfied with that. And so his, his words to me was like, I want to I shift the focus of my time, my money, my energy, my resources. By the end of my life, I want to be able to say five, 10, 20 human beings, 100 human beings through my energy and God's work through me are now brought into the family, have his presence here on earth as well as future hope. Now, as his friend, and I'm hearing him say this, I'm excited, right? I'm excited by his loyalty and his conviction, but I'm also shrinking on the inside because like, Am I more and more like using my life to, to preach the gospel? Yeah. Am I like continuing to influence and encourage the people around me? Yeah. Is there any one individual that God working through me has brought into his family? There's not one that I can name. And when I die, I don't want that to be the case. There's a second true story. Um, this week, I heard of a wealthy man who built a, a massive home and he developed it over the course of about 20 years. He kept adding on, developing, developing, improving, improving. And he died this year, shortly after completing this two decade mansion. His home is now worth $27 million. Now, I don't know his whole story, so I, I am withholding commentary, but with that alone, I can't help but wonder, was building a $27 million home driven by more? I want more. Was it driven by empire? The question is when you have enough, I'm an, I have enough. Do you go and buy a, build a multi-million dollar home? And I wonder like, what if this man had very sincerely and contentedly just said like, I have enough, I've got plenty. I don't need another mansion. I'm gonna use my $27 million and I'm gonna give it to Union Gospel Mission and serve men and women who are homeless in our area. I'm gonna give $27 million to World Relief in Spokane that houses displaced refugees from across the world. I'm gonna give $27 million to Open Arms who serves mothers in crisis seeking abortion. I'm gonna give $27 million to the Jonah Project, which cares for trafficked human beings. $27 million to plant churches across the world. And I wonder like what treasures could have been stored in heaven? What treasures could have brought, been brought from heaven to earth in God's presence as his gospel is preached? If one man had just said, I have enough. I'm going to use this for the kingdom. And with this story specifically, it is very easy to point fingers. I look at him and feel very clearly like he had more than enough. 
without a doubt, unquestioning. He had more than enough. He should have done X, Y, Z. But Jesus gives us a story for this, and it's in Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to summarize it. Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story, and in the story, there's a master who entrusts some of his resources to his servants who act as stewards of it. To one, he gives a small sum, to another, a mid-sized sum, and to another, a large sum. And then he goes traveling, and he says, in my absence, be responsible for it and use it well. After he returns from his travels, two of the three servants have done so. And his words to them are, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. You've been faithful over little. Receive without guilt. The goal is not to create guilt either for your present or your past or your future hopes. Receive without guilt, but also like in the kingdom of God, give without hesitation. Do you have enough? Now this is a big topic and I've been wrestling with it and Whitney and I have been wrestling with it. And so as we leave as a, a church family, like none of us will do this perfectly we're going to wrestle with it. And and for some of us, this might be our first exposure. And so you are not expected to do it perfectly, to totally understand it, do it perfectly, just on hearing it and living it the first time. So our goal is to hear it and wrestle. And it might take years of listening, abiding, letting Jesus shape us, and that's good. But I do wanna give us one tool that helps us wrestle and apply this. So we're not just going out with a bunch of like hard feelings, but we have tangibles. And so this one tool is not based out of a desire to, to judge how each of us uses our resources, but I hope it helps us become faithful servants over much or little. So here it is. It's two, two big questions. The first bit of question being, whenever you want something, when you want to purchase something or chase something, just ask, do I already have enough? Do I need this? Where will this be in five years? Is this a, a, a moth and rust will destroy situation? And then the second question is just ask, like, what else could I do with this? Whether it's money or time pursuit, energy, right? What else could I do with this? We as God's people, by trusting that we have enough, that God has given us plenty, like God has given me plenty. I have enough. And I'm beginning to become willing to use those resources differently. And as I'm saying this, like this question of like, do I need this? It doesn't have to be squelching. It doesn't mean you just never get anything you ever want, okay? It doesn't mean you can't have nice things. Sometimes it will be a yes, no situation. Yes, I want this, but I'm going to say no and use these resources differently. But it can also be a yes and situation. Yes, I want this and I'm going to do something. So for example, 
um, maybe I want to go buy a new car and, and I can't afford a new car, but I could get like a new car, you know? And so I've set a budget for myself and I can go and I can get a 2015. It's a pretty new car. That's nice. And I can look at that and I can say, I could buy a 2015. I can afford that responsibly. I can also buy a 2010 and I'd, that'd probably be enough. Like I'd probably be very happy with that. And I don't know if I'd really notice the difference. So I'm going to buy the 2010 and I'm going to use that $4,000 difference or whatever it is. And I'm just going to say like, God, this is for your kingdom. Now we can take this to the extreme. And I would say it's good if we do so. The extreme being the $27 million home. Would it have been right? Would all of us have applauded that man if he said, I don't need it? I think that would have been right to take it to the extreme. So for us, whether it's the upgrade, whether it's the buying of the second thing or the new thing, I think we can take it to the extreme in a good way, but we also need to remember it in the small. Whether it's the used car and $2,000 or whether it's the $20 pair of shoes that I just decided, I don't need another pair of shoes. I have enough. I'm going to use $20 differently. I'm going to lay up treasure in heaven. Now, again, Jesus is not trying to take your money. He wants your heart to be rooted in a place with eternal security and meaning. He wants your body to be full of light, of purity, of behavior and action, of of like divine truth. He wants you to be free from the things that would enslave you if not for his presence. So again, like receive without guilt. The goal is not to create guilt. Receive without guilt, but share without hesitation. When God wanted to reshape his people, when he wanted to get empire out of their hearts, he took them into the wilderness, a dry, lonely place but it was there that he he taught them to trust that he would give them enough. They learned to trust him with their daily bread. And the wilderness, this is the beautiful part. The wilderness was not God beating empire out of his children. The wilderness was God's honeymoon. The wilderness was where he made a marriage covenant that said, I will love you and be faithful to you for the entirety of your lives. I will provide for you. I'll make sure you have enough. You can trust me. It was the honeymoon where bride and groom, God and his people got to know each other in intimacy. If any of this makes you anxious, bound up, Jesus continues his teaching and his very next line is, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. And he continues to explain that. And that's what we're doing next week. As Jesus riles us up and he challenges us as a good father would. And then he says, therefore, don't be anxious. That's what we're gonna get into next week. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, I am sorry for the ways that I've, um, I think even just in in 
speaking and teaching again. I've remembered the ways I've walked the path before me without even questioning it. Um, God, thank you. Thank you for your word, the truth and the life that you're offering in this. Would you remind us that you are gentle? You are not condemning us from above. You are with us. You are smiling on us. Even if like right now we feel unworthy, you are smiling at us. Teach us to be faithful servants with much or with little. Amen. We started doing this really cool thing at the end of any teaching where we just spend five minutes doing question and response. And Roy can stay there, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, We just spend five minutes and this is question and response. This is an opportunity for us to question the teaching of Jesus, to respond to him. Um, I'm gonna do my best as kind of facilitator to uh, answer or provide some input, though I may not have good answers. Um, And I'll admit that when that's the case. So there's, there's two ways to do that. You can either uh, email or text to questions at alloflife.church. And that's gonna take about 90 seconds to go from your phone back there to me. So do that now if you have any questions, big or small. The second way you can do that is just raise your hand. Like it takes 90 seconds for the anonymous option. That's an option if you wanna be anonymous, but if you also just wanna throw up a, a question, we'll do that too. Um, Does anyone have a question or a response? We're gonna have one on the screen. Trevor, what is your experience with kingdom generosity? Can you tell us how it began for you and what you're seeing happen in your soul as you live into a more generous way of life? I feel both put on the spot and flattered at the same time. What is your experience with kingdom generosity? How it began for you, what you're seeing happen in your soul as you live a more generous way of life. Um, I think it began with me uh, about two years ago. Truthfully, like I think I've wrestled as many of us do with like generosity, wanting to be give away, not really knowing all the details. Um, But where I think it began to really take shape for me is about two or three years ago, my wife and I started studying the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the day that God says, stop chasing, just trust me. And for me, that was the house project. It wasn't necessarily income. It was, Trevor, your hope is in your house project. And that one day that'll be done. And one day you'll be satisfied, one day. And, and for me, like, but God, if I stop chasing for one seventh of my life, I'm not gonna get as much done. I'm not going to earn as much, do as much, be as much. And he said, like, that's enough. You don't need to use that Sabbath to become a super spiritual being. You don't need to use that Sabbath to earn anything, accomplish anything. I love you as you are. You are enough. And that has brought me like personal freedom that is just incredible. My wife and I had Sabbath yesterday and I just rested and I worked on this because I didn't finish it during the week, but even in working, it was like, I don't need to strive. There was something different about the, the air. Um, and how is it, that's, that's kind of how it's been happening. And then that, you can see how that um, train of thought quickly transitions to my money too. Even if I don't get that thing, I'll still be, I'm still enough. I have enough. Um, and what it's done is it's made my wife and I more generous. 
And interestingly, like both in the short term, it's led us like with the baby bottle boomerang, like I had some coins that I just wanted like, yeah, did my coins. It was like 60 bucks worth of coins, okay. And my, my wife said like, hey, what if we gave more? I mean, I do have enough, okay. And I feel like a lightness about my soul. Any other questions? Yeah. When you say the word convert someone from stinginess into generosity, are you assuming this person is a Christ follower? Yeah. Um, so I would say if they were not a Christ follower, their first concern or our first concern is not their generosity. Our first concern is their acceptance of the Lordship and the seeing the goodness of Christ. Far before we expect them to morally behave well, our concern is do you know and love the King? If they are converted, um, this may be one of those times where as a loving friend, you speak hard words. I did not want to say any of this. And yet Jesus's words were before me and I had to trust him to teach me and you and us. And I had to trust you to hear me and not just like jerkwad Trevor. Like I, I had to trust the Holy Spirit in you to speak to you over time. It's been weeks at minimum for me. I think for many of us, it'll be years of being transformed by this. Jesus has lots of teachings about generosity. Um, the one that comes to my mind is Matthew chapter 19, another uh, story of Jesus's, or this one's actually real life, but a, a rich young man comes to him. This, in, in love, this may be a place to direct that person. A rich young man comes to him and says, Jesus, I'm doing everything well. What more must I do? I'm already morally perfect. Doesn't use those words, but he says, I'm already following all the commandments. What more must I do? And Jesus says, sell everything you own, bankrupt yourself out of loyalty for me, and then come, follow me. And, and the guy like, the, the tension that we're feeling, he responds to it. He looks at like the path through the wilderness and he says, like, nope, and he walks away. And so like there, there's, my concern would be more for this person's tenderness towards the spirit than their generosity. And, and working, not working is a weird word, but like being a friend with them to try to like bring tenderness to abiding, like being with God, hearing from him, that would be my concern or my, my first thought with that. Um, that's our time. I'm, I'm really glad just to hang out up here. If you've got more questions, uh, I'll, I'll spend a few minutes if you wanna come up and chat. Um,